Welcome to America's Heroes Group podcast with information and resources that's disseminated intentionally to empower our military population with host Vietnam veteran Cliff Kelly, co-host Iraq veteran Colonel Dr. Damon Arnold, and co-host Army National Guard veteran Sean Claiborne. And now, America's Heroes Group podcast. Back to America's Heroes Group, this town the Roundtable Partner, Maison. September is National Suicide Prevention and Hispanic Heritage Month. Saturday, September 9th is today, 2023. Our host is Cliff Kelly. I'm Sean Clayman, the co-host. Our executive producer is Glenda Smith. Our digital media producer is Ivan Ortega of Scott's Honor Productions. And we have our partner with us, Josh Protas. He is a vice president of public policy and heads the Washington, D.C. office of Maison. Josh coordinates and implements Maison's advocacy agenda to strengthen and improve the federal nutrition safety net. We're going to talk about the Jewish organization's response to hunger. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you? Pretty good. So you have a lot of experience with working at the local and the national level with this issue of food insecurity, food, um, access to food and, and healthy food. So, um, what is the mission of Mazone? Can you explain that in more detail and how this organization um, got to this mission? Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, first of all, mazon is a Hebrew word. It means nourishment or sustenance. Uh, we're a national organization that brings the American Jewish community voice to anti-hunger policy and advocacy. So we're really centered on the policy and advocacy because we know that the charitable sector does important work to meet emergency needs, but it just doesn't have the capacity to fully address an issue of the magnitude of hunger in the United States. And, and that's why government programs, particularly federal government programs, are so critical. Um, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, formerly Food, food Stamps, is the most powerful anti-hunger uh, line of defense that we have. And it's critically important that that program is robustly funded, works efficiently, and has um, the full capabilities to reach everybody in need. Um, so Mazone's been around since 1985. Um, one of the things we've done over the years is really look at populations that have unique needs and challenges that sometimes fall through the cracks, not only uh, by because of, of program access, but also the anti-hunger community may not focus in as much. And over the past decade uh, plus, we've uh, been leading national efforts to address food insecurity among active duty military families as well as veteran families and really trying to close some gaps that exist that, I mean, it's just shocking that we even have to talk about food insecurity for military families. Like, those should never go together in the same sentence. But... Mm-hmm. Um, too common they do. Mm-hmm. And that leads me to the question um, that I'll ask later because it's a loaded question, and um, and then I know neither of us have the answer to it, but I wanted to get through these other talking points first. But I'm glad you touched on that, that question of why there is uh, food insecurity among military family members and veterans um, in this country at, alone. But what are some of the policies that are, that, that are being tossed around in D.C. that would improve hunger among veterans and military families? Yeah, so the the issues for currently serving military families are a little bit different than, than for the veteran population. So for currently serving military families, there's actually a barrier that makes it more difficult for them to qualify for SNAP, even when they need 
that help. Um, so Mazan's been leading the effort to try and address that. Um, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program is authorized as part of the, the Farm Bill, which comes up before Congress about every five years, and we're currently in a Farm Bill cycle. So there is legislation, um, and one of the champions on the Senate side is uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth. She's long been a champion on this issue. It would make a simple change to remove the barrier for military families. And, and the issue really stems from the way the basic allowance for housing, which is given to service members who live off base or in privatized military housing. Um, the BAH is not counted as income for federal income tax purposes in most federal programs, but for SNAP, it is counted as income. And so when you take even a low rate of base pay for a junior enlisted service member, but you add on top of that their BAH, it often puts people outside of eligibility for SNAP, even though they really need that help. And the people we're talking about are, are junior enlisted um, service members who are trying to support a household. You know, they have multiple dependents, and they're often getting by just on a single source of income. So in the Farm Bill, um, we are pushing very hard to try and remove that barrier at the same time, uh, in the National Defense Authorization Act, there's a program um, that just got started that, in, in a way, was a workaround solution to this barrier to SNAP. It's the Military Family Basic Needs Allowance. Um, and so that conveys to service members who are at or below 150% of the federal poverty level based on their household income. Uh, but for that program, also, the BAH is treated as income. So we're trying to rectify that as well. Hmm. And then, people, and then on, on, oh, go, go ahead. No, I was just going to add that, you know, people don't realize that when you're when you're a junior enlisted or if you're sort of an E1 or a person who's just getting into the military and you ha don't really have any real rank, you're just a, an, a new um, um, enlisted person, um, you don't make a lot of money. So the military is already kind of baked in the cake of your pay that you're going to be on base probably. We're going to feed you. We're going to, we're going to give you uniforms. You don't have to buy clothes all the time. So that's basically what you're living on. If you live on bare minimum, it's probably, possibly you can make more money if you did the if you actually did the math working at McDonald's than, you know, why you're actually an, an E1 or E2 even or even an E3. You know, you could spend and two or three the, years, you know, in the military and you got yeah. a family to support on top of that. And you might be the only breadwinner in the family. The compensation structure is really still more geared towards single individuals. And, and, you know, part of the challenge for military families is a very high rate of spousal unemployment. And when you think about it, that, that service members are PCSing and moving every two to three years, many employers are reluctant to hire a spouse if they know they're just going to be gone in a couple of years. And so the rates of uh, military spouse unemployment are about 24, 25 percent. That doesn't even take into account underemployment, where somebody might be taking a job that's you know below their training or reduced hours. Um, so that's one of the complications for military families. And then related to that is the lack of accessible and affordable child care. So, you know, that leads to higher rates of unemployment because a spouse may not decide to go and work if it, it hardly covers child care or if they can't even access that. Hmm. So what are the, um, the, you mentioned some of the contributing factors about what um, leads to, to food insecurity. How does this, how do we, what are some of the things that we can, can be done, especially with the new legislation coming out to try to impact this or try to fix this? 
Yeah, I mean, um, getting the policy right is really important. So when Mazan started doing this work, um, we were just shocked to, to learn that this was so pervasive. And it's really been an issue that has been ignored for a long time. Um, and the sad truth is that there are food pantries on or near every single military base in this country that are quietly serving families that can't get the help they need from programs like SNAP. And so they're turning really in desperation to the charitable sector. Um, you know, it's important to meet people where they are now and meet their emergency needs, but there's no reason that military families on a routine basis should have to go to food banks and food pantries. We really need to have the federal government take responsibility. I mean, the, you know, we're asking so much of military families. The least we can do is make sure that they can put healthy food on the table. So getting the policies right by removing the barrier to SNAP and then also making sure that the basic needs allowance works properly would go a long way towards uh, giving some extra purchasing power to military families. So making sure that um, there's strong congressional support for that. I know in Illinois, you know, you're blessed to have great representatives and, and senators. Um, as I mentioned, Tammy Duckworth has, has long been a champion on this issue. Um, we just need to get some deeper bipartisan support to get this over the finish line. And Tammy Duckworth, of course, is a, is a U.S. Army veteran herself, um, Black Hawk helicopter pilot, who was shot down and, became, and lost her legs in, in an accident um, when she was serving. Now, uh, what are some of the policy, more specifically, what are some of the policy um, um, issues that Mazone wants to advocate for? Because that's what your core uh, job is. You guys advocate to try to change social, social policy and legislation. Um, what are yeah. some key things that you guys really want to see happen to really, really get a handle on this situation? Yeah, so we're deeply engaged in the farm bill process right now. So uh, the farm bill, as I mentioned, goes through Congress about every five years. And, and the current farm bill is set to expire September 30th of this year. Now, it's possible that, that it gets it's probably going to get delayed before they reauthorize it. Um, we're pushing really hard to protect and strengthen SNAP just fundamentally. And, and there have been some in Congress who have been trying to chip away at SNAP. They actually pushed in as part of the debt ceiling agreement uh, to extend work requirements in SNAP. Uh, so to add the age limit, so it goes up to age 54 now, where um, able-bodied adults without dependents have three months of access to SNAP, and then they lose it if they're not employed or in a registered job training program or some other things. We know those work requirements just don't work. Um, you know, they don't lead to higher employment or earnings for individuals. They just make it more difficult for somebody to get back on their feet if you take their food away from them. Um, so ideally, we'd like to see work requirements go away. In this political environment, it's probably not realistic that that's going to happen, but we don't want to have more strenuous work requirements added to SNAP. So uh, in some ways, we're playing defense. Um, there are some things we want to do, like uh, removing the barrier for military families. There's a policy in the Farm Bill we'd like to see that would uh, change the, uh, the calculations for disabled veterans. So currently, if you're a veteran who has a VA disability, you only are treated as disabled under the SNAP program if you have a 100% uh, disability rating. There's a proposed legislation to change that to 60%. So that would make it a little easier for disabled veterans to to have some special considerations for SNAP. Um, so that that's, 
you know, among the things, we're also doing some focused work about um, the people of Puerto Rico and being able to, to uh, have a transition back into the SNAP program for Puerto Rico. We're doing some focused work on Indian country where tribal nations are interested in administering programs like SNAP. Um, and interestingly, there are very significant veteran populations in Indian country and also in Puerto Rico. Um, and, you know, when you look at food insecurity in this country, disproportionately, it's people of color who are, are impacted. Um, and that's just not right. So SNAP, you know, is a program that helps to level the playing field. It, it gives people the support they need. But we need to make sure that we don't have barriers that make it more difficult for them to get that help. You touched on an interesting fact, because when I was in uh, basic training and AIT, um, my initial training and my advanced training when I became a mechanic, uh, probably about, I'd say, less than 10 percent, a little bit less than 10 percent of our platoon was from Puerto Rico. Two, mm-hmm. two, of, my, two of the guys I served with, um, two or three of the guys I served with, didn't even speak English that well. They were learning English as they were serving. Um, they spoke Spanish, yes, and and in the Native American population, it's known and well documented that a large percentage of Native Americans, um, I don't know if it's a warrior culture or something that goes back to back to the old days, but they have a large percentage of their population and their culture who joined the military and served in the military. And a lot of a lot of you know medals of honor have been handed out to uh, Native Americans. Native Americans serve in the military at the highest rate of any demographic group in the country. And also, you know, if you look at, at tribal reservations, the rates of food insecurity are by far the highest there. So um, th- there's definitely some inequities. And in Puerto Rico, let me just mention quickly, um, I didn't really understand this before I started working on this issue, but Puerto Rico is an American territory. People who live there are U.S. citizens. Uh, but there are lots of policies of territorial exceptionalism that treat U.S. territories really as second-class uh, places. In, for example, people living in Puerto Rico um, are U.S. citizens, but they are not eligible for programs like SNAP. Uh, Puerto Rico was explicitly taken out of the SNAP program, and instead there's a block-granted program that has limited funding. It's called the Nutrition Assistance Program, or NAP. Um, but that program does not fully respond to the needs in Puerto Rico, and it doesn't have the ability to increase when there are times of natural disaster like hurricanes. And we're in the midst of hurricane season now, and Puerto Rico is still recovering from the last wave of natural disasters. And so we we treat places like Puerto Rico differently, and it makes it more difficult for people to to just get ahead. And touch, going back to what you touched on earlier, too, as well, because I wanted to get into this. And so I know a lot of people are concerned about this, and this is an argument against uh, some of the, the points that you've talked about. The data from which you've um, mentioned shows that when you have, when you make it harder for people to qualify for food um, and get, you know, food help, for help to buy food and things like that, nutri- especially nutritional food, um, it doesn't help people get off um poverty get out of poverty or get jobs or do anything like so when you make work requirements and things like that you're saying that the data shows that it's ineffective at trying to get people to you know buy their own food by cutting them off from getting food so can you speak more to that and and why is there why is that such a pervasive uh, theory and is it just based in um and 
and and what people's ideologies are? Is it or there, is there any other data that shows that? Well, if you make it hard for people to to get on welfare or harder for people to get food stamps, um, they'll figure out some, something else to do and they'll go take that job working at UPS or take that job doing something else so they can make money. Yeah, um, uh, you mentioned ideology, and this is really about ideology. I mean. The overwhelming number of people who are able to work, who receive SNAP, do work. And, and SNAP actually supports a very large number of working poor in this country. Um, I think that there is this mythology that welfare programs keep people out of work. That, that um, And a lot of this is based on, on stereotypes that are often racially coded. And, you know, it goes back to the 1980s and the, and the stereotype of the welfare queen. Mm-hmm. And that people have this idea that government benefits are leading people to leave comfortable lives and, and just sit on the couch all day and not work. The reality is most people who are able to work, the overwhelming majority of people who are able to work, want to work in Either they can't find work or they face barriers like transportation that make it difficult. Uh, programs like SNAP just help to to give them a cushion to be able to meet their basic needs. And, and really, that should be part of our, our core social contract in this country, that people don't struggle to meet their basic necessities. And, and when you look at SNAP, I mean, nobody's leading cush lives uh, because they're receiving SNAP benefits. The average benefit amount for SNAP is $2.03 per person per meal. I mean, most people spend more for their daily cup of coffee than that. Um, so you're, you're not going out and buying steak and lobster when you're getting SNAP benefits. Um, it's a supplement. It, it, you know, it helps, hopefully, to be able to enable people to purchase healthy food. But the sad truth is it's much cheaper to buy unhealthy food, uh, highly processed food that just fills you up with empty calories. It's much more expensive to buy fresh fruits and vegetables and, and protein. Um, but the benefit amounts for SNAP and other programs are just so modest that it's difficult for people to, um, to eat healthier. And then, unfortunately, it costs our country a lot more because when people don't eat healthy, they're more at risk of diet-related health conditions like obesity, diabetes, uh, heart disease. They cost so much more in terms of addressing those health care problems down the road. I haven't seen any real numbers or hard statistics on this on this uh, um, anecdote, but many people say, and people advocates for, for food security say, that when the benefits go down, the crime goes up. Have you seen anything like that? So when people take when people have a hard time getting food benefits or getting uh, um, money for or getting uh, I, uh, things for food, does it affect? How does it affect crime rates? I don't know. I, I haven't seen anything specific around crime rates, but I mean, we do have some some current examples where benefits have gone down. So we uh, during the course of the pandemic, there was a boost to SNAP benefits. Uh, an emergency allotment that increased um, at a minimum $95 per month per person of a boost. Um, That benefit boost expired with the end of the public health emergency. And then also during that time, we had the expansion of the child tax credit. Between those two things, it kept millions and millions of people out of poverty. Hmm. Um, It made a huge difference, particularly for children. Um, I think it was and it was a significant number of children who were kept out of poverty. And then Congress let that boost lapse. Um, so I, I haven't seen in a, a correlation with, with 
increasing crime rates because of the, of the, the termination of, of those boosts. Um, but, but I think, you know, if you think at, at a personal level, people will feel more desperate if they're struggling more and um, there aren't necessarily jobs that they can just go into. And, and they were probably looking for jobs before. Um, so it just, increases hardship, um, you know, and how people respond to that hardship is going to vary. Um, I'd be a little careful about the crime rate correlation because that might tie into, you know, some of the stereotypes um, that get bandied about when you're talking about SNAP recipients. Um, but what I would say is, is that, you know, we know that increasing the benefit amounts, making sure that the programs like SNAP reach everybody who need the help, it works. Like we, we saw that during the course of the pandemic, that those benefit boosts decreased significantly the rates of poverty. And, and you know, when we're talking about hunger, it's not a matter of having sufficient food. It's not a matter of having sufficient resources in this country. It's really about having the political will. If we If our elected leaders muster the political will and say, this is a priority. We want to make sure that every person in this country can put food on the table, they can eat and and not go hungry. We could do that. Um, but as a country, we just have not prioritized that to the degree to really strengthen programs like SNAP and WIC and senior feeding programs so that they more adequately take care of the issue. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you see any improvement in the, in the programs that can make them more efficient or uh, make, more, make them more effective beyond just extending benefits? But what if you just took the, the existing um, programs and tried mm-hmm. to make them more efficient? Would that help? Or how, would you, what, would you, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we've seen with SNAP in particular um, some innovations that, that have really helped the program to work better. So first of all, uh, when it, the program was known as food stamps, it literally involved stamps that you would redeem at a store. And uh, there was a lot of stigma associated with that. People were embarrassed to, to pull out their food stamps and have other people online see that they were doing that. And so the, the program has been changed, and SNAP is now um, you, it now uses an electronic benefit transfer card, basically like a credit card. And so that dramatically reduces the stigma. Um, over the course of the pandemic, we saw some rapid uh, changes to respond to, um, to the, the emergency um, that really helped significantly. So rapid scaling up of online grocery purchases. Um, so that's great. And you think about people who are homebound and may not be able to get to the grocery store. And so if they can do online purchasing and have those groceries delivered using their SNAP card, that's fantastic. Um, we saw some relaxing of um, uh, there's kind of a ban on purchasing prepared foods. And so um, in some cases where you can purchase like a rotisserie chicken at a grocery store, um, normally that's not allowed under SNAP. Uh, but there have been some flexibilities and, and we see that that makes a difference so that people can um can kind of meet their needs and be a little more flexible um, with the reality of their situation. You know, for some people who don't have kitchen access, uh, prepared foods are really important. And and we see that for college students and and a lot of college students struggle with food insecurity. And so making sure that they have better access to supports that they need. I've seen a few in my day when I was in college. 
Now, but why was why was that a case? Why was it a, such a bad thing for people to buy prepared foods with a snap card? I mean, I don't see why. What's the problem if you just go to McDonald's even with a snap card? Why was that an issue to begin with? I I, I think it was to so snap originally was sort of predicated on the idea that you would prepare your meals at home, and and so the benefit amount was actually uh, originally calculated based on on kind of home cooking and, and it was based on um, the value of things like dry beans and things that, that take time to cook. Um, so I think in, in some ways it, it's sort of an antiquated idea about how people eat. Um, but it was also to try and keep people like not wanting people to just use snap dollars at restaurants. Um, right. So, so the prepared food ban it like it has some drawbacks to it i you know i think the idea is also to help people be eating healthier um but there there's more and more of a movement to relax that um that ban on prepared foods recognizing that like rotisserie chicken is a huge help for a family that you know, feeding kids and you have two working parents or or a single parent that's working and you just don't have the time to prepare a meal from scratch. A rotisserie chicken um, is a great way to get protein on the table that doesn't take a lot of time or effort. So I, I think we're getting better at recognizing the realities of modern life, um, but there's more that we can do still. And on that, we have about two minutes left. And I wanted to get into this because this, this is a real thing. I mean, I've worked with veterans and people who are not veterans who are homeless on the street. Can a person who's homeless, um, who would could never go and just cook anything or prepare some a pot of beans <laughs> on the street? <laughs> I mean, right. w- uh, what can could, how hard is it for someone who is homeless without an address to get on SNAP or get some of these programs? Yeah, so that so um, we didn't get a chance to talk too much about veterans, but um, for homeless veterans, you don't need to have a permanent address. There are ways that you you can apply for SNAP and have. Uh, an address that, that you could relate to that where your benefits could, could convey to you. So one of the big challenges for the veteran population is an under-participation in SNAP, where a lot of veterans are eligible and they leave those benefits on the table. Um, you know, as you said, if, if you don't have access to a kitchen, it's trickier. Like, what foods would you be able to, to purchase using your SNAP dollars that you could eat? And there's some supports and resources to help with that but um, we need to do a lot more because of all veterans who are eligible for SNAP only about one-third participate so that means veterans are struggling needlessly they are leaving those benefits on the table when they could really get that help from SNAP and uh, a a big reason for that is a lot of stigma and shame and and pride Um, veterans either don't know about SNAP or they're reluctant to ask for that help. And we need to change that mindset. Get the help you need, veterans. Do what you got to do to survive and also be healthier to get yourself out of the situation that you're in. If you're in a bad situation, always be looking to improve. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate you, Josh, for coming out and telling us about the things you're doing. And I'd like to have you back to get more specific things on the VA and what the VA is doing in the Department of Defense and Congress. Thanks for your participation in this conversation. Thank you. This is America's Heroes Group. We'll be right back.
Thank you for listening to America's Heroes Group Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And for more details, visit americashg.org.